Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of That Anthro Podcast. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I am the host. If this is your first time joining us, thank you so much for clicking on the podcast. We post weekly episodes on Wednesdays. And you can follow us at That Anthro Podcast on Instagram or at That Anthro Pod on Twitter. This week, I have a very special guest on because she is another anthropology podcaster. Her name is Sarah Dugnan, and she runs the Anthro Dish podcast. And she's also an international podcast guest. She's from Canada. Um, before we get into this week's episode, I do have a book that I want to recommend to all of you, which is called All That Remains by Sue Black. It is um, the story of her life through her journey in education to become a forensic anthropology, her perspectives on the job and death and life. It's a wonderful read and I am truly enjoying it. But without further ado, let's get into the episode with Sarah Dugnan. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk all about your experiences as an anthropologist and also your experiences as a fellow anthro podcaster. So I'm just going to say that now I'll also have it linked below. We'll talk about it throughout. You can check out Sarah's podcast, Anthro Dish, on all of the major streaming platforms. It is wonderful. And throughout, we'll kind of explain what, what Anthro Dish is. So we're also having some rare rain today in Santa Barbara, and so if anyone hears in the background, maybe it'll be cozy, but sorry, it never rains here. (laughs) Definitely a surprise, and it is banging against my window, so we'll see. Maybe it'll it'll probably stop in like five minutes because it's Santa Barbara, so you never know. It'll be good uh, audio for when I talk about water. It can kind of work together. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So to begin the episode, I always like to let my guests introduce themselves a little bit. So why don't you introduce where you're from and a little bit about your life currently and what you're working on right now? Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me, Gabby. I really appreciate it. And I'm always so excited to like see other anthro podcasters out there. Um, yeah. So I guess right now I'm coming to you from um, the small town of Peterborough or Nagojuan, um, which is based out of Ontario, Canada. Um, it's it's a couple hours north of Toronto. Um, I used to be based out of Toronto and then during COVID with all the lockdowns, uh, and having a kid, it was just safer to move back to my smaller town for my kid. 
Um, there, there aren't as many cases here, thankfully. So I've been here since the summer. Um, I'm just in the process of writing out my dissertation right now, which is in medical anthropology. Um, yeah. And that's pretty much the, between that lockdown, parenting, writing my mm-hmm. dissertation, that is where I'm at right now. Oh, and, you know, hosting an awesome podcast. So there's that too. There's that too. <laughs> that too. Just all of yeah. that. So like you were saying, you're working on a PhD um, in health at McMaster University in Canada. uh, And you, in one of your episodes, you described you use kind of a biocultural approach to study health. So I'd love to hear more about what you're researching for your dissertation. And especially I'm actually taking a medical anthropology class right now. And it's really my first introduction to the study of health. And I'm really enjoying it, especially because she's really working in a lot of stuff with the pandemic so we can relate experiences. And that's been really great. Uh, But yeah, I'm super excited to hear about your your research. Nice. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. So I I focus on medical anthropology. Um, I I work with Six Nations of the Grand River First Nation. So this is an Indigenous community that lives... um, it's about two hours south of Toronto, just outside of Hamilton, which is where my university McMaster is located. Um, I've been collaborating with them for about three or four years now. Um, and I work on a project that's led by Dr. Don Martin Hill, who's um, a, an Indigenous scholar. She's Mohawk from Six Nations. Um, and our project is really looking at the First Nations water crisis in Canada. And we're looking specifically at Six Nations. So um how has the contamination of the Grand River and its offshoots impacted the health and well-being of um, Six Nations or Haudenosaunee peoples? How can we assess water security um, at the community level in a way that's much more meaningful um, than just like you know access to water? So thinking about it spiritually, thinking about it culturally, socially, um, physically, and mentally as well, um, and then really looking at how it how water use and water access is impacting health on a deeper level. Um, So I guess that's kind of like the elevator pitch of the research. Um, So I've been doing a community health assessment there for the last few years. And uh, yeah, and then we're also starting to um, kind of build upon that further looking at how water access and COVID are related um, because Indigenous nations are much more at risk for getting COVID and don't have access to water. And when you need to like wash your hands as a health protocol, that becomes much trickier. So that's kind of our, our next steps as well. Um, how large are the communities you're working with? So Six Nations is actually the largest First Nation in Canada. Um, there are over 24,000 um, status members. I think there are about 12 to 13,000 people living on reserve. There's also like the issue of um, kind of measuring blood quantum, right? So it's not necessarily an accurate measurement, but they are one of the, the biggest First Nations. Um, and also arguably like have had a lot of successes. They're very strong, very resilient, lots of amazing indigenous or Mohawk artists in particular uh, coming out of of Six Nations. Um, Yet despite that, there's only uh, 9% of the population is hooked up to the water treatment plant. So that's about, um, I'm not doing my math right now, 91% of um, households within Six Nations don't have access to uh, treatment plant water coming through their taps. So they rely on wells or cisterns. Um, and a lot of these have issues with contamination. So it's even for, you know, bigger and, and more successful first nations, this is still very, very persistent issue and it's not really treated as such. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So could you elaborate on your journey to where you are now as an anthropologist? So how did you learn about anthropology and get interested in it and find your way to, you know, a PhD in anthropology? Sure. It's a kind of weird story, but I feel like everyone in anthro has a weird story, but like, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, so for me, I was in first year at the university of Guelph, uh, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to take. Um, you know, first year, you just kind of explore all your mm-hmm. options. Um, I was pretty set on doing like biology and English because I, we have like a mixed program. And then I took an anthro course just to fill it in an elective. Uh, and the woman teaching it would like, like she had this really incredible research that she was doing and then she would stop class and, and end it because she heard ghosts talking in like in the backgrounds of our lectures uh, <laughs> and was just like so out of this world, um, so interesting. And I was like, I need to be in whatever this lady is doing. Um, <laughs> so then I ended up switching over to Trent University, did my undergrad in osteo because that was just something that like my biological background gravitated towards. Um, I did my master's. Oh, we love osteo over yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was like, I did that for a very long time. And then during my master's, um, I was living in Winnipeg and there's also um, a huge indigenous population living in Winnipeg um, who are like dispossessed from their lands. And so just living there and, and like living near a lot of um, indigenous neighbors who were really struggling, it became really I got to the point where I was like I don't really know what I'm doing with my research like I love what I'm doing it's fun but like I need something more tangible um, and I need to feel like I'm using my my brain in a way that's a little bit more helpful Um, and so that was kind of how I ended up doing my PhD was was working towards creating something that I felt was a little bit more applicable um, or a more applied approach to to what I had learned and was using for health Um, yeah and then and then I started working with Don and the rest is history. Yeah, I feel like trying to solve today's problems rather, I mean, you know, obviously the study of the past and different types of anthropology where we do that is really wonderful. But when you can apply it to today and, you know, how we, things we need today, crises we need to fix today, I think it's a really cool area of study because your work really gets to have that impact. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's like, it's important because I think we, especially when you work in bioanthro, it's like, it's such a strange intersection sometimes because a lot of the work ends up looking at the past, but it has such profound implications for what's happening right now. And I think having that ability to jump between, between worlds, I suppose, for lack of a better word, and understanding, you know, human behavior is, is, I don't want to say it's predictable, but you can, you can kind of understand how things are going to happen by looking at the past and applying it to the future. And, um, yeah, so I think it's, it's a really valuable ability to kind of pull that out and then figure out ways to put it into like more public anthro-based stuff as well. Definitely. It's a really good opportunity. Um, so other than food studies and osteology, uh, do you have any other niche subjects in the field that you find really interesting? Yeah. So I think the things that I really, really love to do, um, are water security and like just looking at like the myth of water in, in Western um, contexts or like the way that water is perceived in Western frameworks. Uh, that's something that I really love. I also really love digital medium. So I love kind of looking at like, um, food and social media or just like how social media embodies, um, can kind of come together. I realize it says it sounded like embodies, but I meant social media and bodies, um, interact and kind of share identities through, 
through social media and digital medias as well. That's really cool. I I feel like I need to he- I need to read about that <laughs> because <laughs> that sounds interesting. I definitely think that social media is something that now we can study because it's been around long enough and it's interesting because I feel like just yesterday we all joined, but it's it hasn't been. It's been like a decade or so. Yeah. And I also find like I've uh, I've been positioned like I kind of grew up as it was all coming out like I was in high school and Facebook came out. And so in that sense, I'm like the digital native where I've like understood technology as it comes out. And uh, I'm so fascinated by especially just like how we kind of understand ourselves in North American contexts and cultures um, and like the ideas of wellness and diet culture and like how all these things kind of intersect on social media and come out um yeah just fascinating to me very very fascinating let's talk about all things anthro dish which is your podcast (laughs) what prompted you to even consider starting a podcast and when did you start posting episodes so when did you kind of start the process good question so i i distinctly remember uh this is, there's no way to tell it without sounding a little bit salty, but uh, I was working as a TA many years ago um, in like a food anthro course. And I was, I had to attend the lecture. So I was like very grumpy about that because it was mm-hmm. like a Monday night from like seven to 10 PM. And I just, and I like, I had to take the train back to Toronto every night. So I just like, wasn't into it. And I was sitting there and I was just listening and it was the same material again and again and again. Um, like talking about food deserts or talking about the obesity epidemic or all these things that like we had already culturally kind of started to reconcile, but then in class, they were still being talked about as if that was okay. Or if like those things were, were talkable subjects and it was, you know, you'd, you'd get quotes from anthropologists, but you wouldn't actually hear from people um, who were experiencing these issues or who were, who were living through them. So I just kind of got frustrated and I was like, I don't understand why we're not just like there's got to be a different way to do it. Um, so I had started thinking about creating a space where we could have these conversations. And I was also, I guess I should also know, I was working at a, a vegan restaurant at that time. So mm-hmm. um, the the intersections between the two for me was, was really interesting because my friends in the food service industry were doing all these incredible things. And there was just such a disconnect between like my academic world and the food service world where they could be working really harmoniously together. So I think that also kind of shaped it. But so I think that happened in the winter. And then by April, I was recording episodes and then I didn't launch them until like July of 2018. So it was about a six month gap between the idea and and the creation. That's great. That's smart. That's what I should have done. It's all right. (laughs) Because looking back, if I were to give, if someone else were to ask me like, oh, what what would your advice be for starting a podcast? I know what my advice would be to backlog episodes before you start. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) I I learned from that. Yeah. (laughs) It's so stressful when you don't have an episode and like a guest backs out at last minute, you're like, oh no. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I don't know if you feel this way, but I find like I constantly struggle between needing and wanting my episodes to be like timely but then also wanting to respect the time that we're in, right? So like, you know, having having conversations around food news as it comes out to me was like really exciting at the beginning um, or even like 
kind of linking it to politics that were happening like that week, because as we've seen, like these things happen so, so quickly. Um, but then at the same time, it's like, sometimes it's nice to just like take, take some time, like take a month after something's happened and then figure out a way to digest it. No pun intended. Yeah. Like down the road. Definitely. Um, so moving back to your podcast, you've explained that one of your goals for the podcast is to discuss how food relates to culture and identity by interviewing guests with either a personal connection or professional connection to food. So this is includes you asking questions like how does food relate to culture and how does this affect our social, personal and household identities in the two years now that you've been doing the podcast, have those goals changed or are you being prompted to ask like new questions or figuring out kind of new angles on how you didn't maybe think before? Definitely. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I really went through like a complete 180 on what I was asking, what I was interested in asking, because when I started out, I, I really wanted to food as a food as a tool to bring people together. That was kind of my, my goal. Um, how can we have all these diverse experiences through life Um, And what's the one thing that like everyone has to eat or everyone has to do, which is eat. Um, And in my mind at that point, it was like, oh, well, you know, food is something that is such a like unifying process. If everyone's sitting at a table eating food at that point to me, I was like, oh, you know, we can talk about all these other issues of politics, of race, of gender, because we're, we're connecting over a very shared experience. But I think um, in the past couple of years, what has flipped for me is like, just through the interviews that I've conducted and through the feedback that I've gotten in the conversations I've had from listeners, um, food is very disconnecting. And I think that that's kind of something that we don't talk about. We always want to talk about the connection, but we want, I think we want to talk about the connection because we're so disconnected from it. Mm -hmm. Um, Food can also be used as like a a powerful force of oppression. Um, And so I think that that is kind of how I've shifted gears and, and the last season really reflects that I'm hoping Um, where we're looking more at, you know, how has food been used in harmful ways and violent ways? How has it been appropriated from BIPOC communities? Um, And and how has it been a tool of oppressing those those communities at the same time and stripping them from, you know, their traditional foods? So, So that I think has been how I've been focusing it in the last few seasons. I'm not sure uh, where I'm going to go with the next season, but that's kind of been, been the, the biggest shift for me. Have you had a favorite topic or interview during your time hosting Anthrodish? And I just want to clarify to everyone that I, I don't mean a favorite guest because that's different. I really mean more like a favorite conversation, like where a topic maybe led to. Yeah, I think um, I've had a lot of conversations that I've really that went in ways that I didn't expect them to, which I always love. I don't I feel like that's like the fun part of being a podcaster. Um, I think the conversation that I don't know if it's my favorite necessarily in terms of topic, but I think it was the one that like was the most, I came in knowing nothing and learning so much. And I think that that's why I valued it. Um, there was one with, uh, a marine biologist, um, and we were looking at, uh, seafood fraud and seafood tax deficits. And he was looking at like kind of showcasing how fishing economies have been um, really exposed and and made vulnerable through climate change, obviously. Um, and at that point, it was, it was a few years ago, but we were talking about how the Trump administration had like changed some 
wildlife acts. And so that put a lot of um, seafood and fishing economies at risk. Um, and that had had significant impacts. Uh, but yeah, I think the thing that was the most surprising, and I'm kind of forgetting the details now that we're talking about it, but uh, it was talking about seafood fraud. So like this idea of of the fish that you get in the grocery store, not necessarily actually being the fish that it's labeled as, and it's like mm-hmm. a cheaper version to match, you know, economy standards. Uh, and he was so well-spoken about it. I, I kind of want to go back and listen now, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was just so surprised. I had no idea about any of these things. And I think that that to me is always the best conversation when like you just get to sit back and learn the same way that your audience would. Definitely. I agree. I think when I have guests on that are just such experts and they communicate their expertise so well that I just sit there and I feel like I'm in the classroom. And I think that's also for me, really why I started my podcast was I was missing so much of that classroom experience of just my professors or graduate students or even other classmates, just being able to like say something, talk about what they were interested in or what they were researching that would just catch my attention and be so cool. I know like one of my favorite niche subjects in anthropology is um, like paleo anthropology nice. and paleo, paleo, is it paleo archaeology? My, I always get them mixed up. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like ancient human species and then also like other related common ancestors I've always found it so interesting and now I'm like getting to dive deeper into it in classes but I am so glad to have even just my my teacher professor McClure she's was a guest on my podcast she just she puts in so much effort even in her videos she tries to leave in like her little jokes and she shows us fun videos even though they're videos like video lectures nice so that's that's great (laughs) That's really interesting. I never really, I never thought about that, like from the undergraduate perspective of this experience being such a disconnect from like the actual classroom and and being able to have those, those moments, like those little moments Mm -hmm. with people who are like higher in ed than you. Um, They're so valuable and they, they can spark like so many different ideas in you, whether it's to continue an anthro or not. Um, Yeah. So that's a really cool way of kind of bringing it back for yourself and for, for others as well. Yeah, I really hope that at some point, you know, I can, the podcast, people can listen to it as undergrads and feel more connected to, you know, graduate students they may want to work with in the future or professors that they've only had in like a huge 300 person lecture hall and they feel Mm -hmm. scared to go to their office hours and they don't really understand maybe what their research is fully about because it's their first anthro class or something. Um, not not there yet I have my like academic audience and that's awesome but when we get back on campus I definitely want to promote it to my fellow undergrad students so it can be kind of like a tool for them to navigate if they're really interested in anthropology because UCSB has such a wonderful anthropology department uh for so many generations that I think it's something Mm -hmm. we should really be like trying to share with the whole 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 school rather than just the students that are taking anthropology classes Yeah. And I think it's important to like, it's important at that community academic level, but then I also think it's important, like when you come from such a a long history at your institution of success and of brilliance, um, I think we owe it to the public to share that. Like, I think that's also why I continue to do this is because like these, these conversations and these moments of like the informal, exciting conversations around science and social science and, and all the things in between, um, 
other people don't get to hear those. They just get the like really formal TED talk lectures where people are like awkwardly standing on an X mm-hmm. um, and they don't get like the awkward little nerdy jokes that we make yeah. or, you know, those, those elements that make us human. And I think that's so important, especially for science right now is to, to bring that humanity back into it because, you know, we're, cl- we're clearly not doing a great job if there are so many people that are like anti-mask, anti-vax, that kind of stuff. Right. So it's important. <laughs> Blows my, yeah. hurts my mind every day. I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so something else I'd love to hear from you is when I was listening to your introductory podcast episode way back in June of 2018, you mentioned how important it is to highlight the fascinating work that's coming out of the fields of anthropology and food studies to a more general audience rather than it just being isolated to an academic circle, which is an amazing goal. And also one of the cool things I think about my podcast as well that I get to do that. So I was curious, since you've been doing the podcast for some time now, have you seen the effects of publicizing uh, the anthropological research? And like, have you had listeners engaging with the content? Have your guests felt really, have they gotten more media attention to their work and felt like it was a positive experience? Yes. Yeah. It's been really strange. Um, (laughs) I guess good. I use the word strange when I mean good, I think. Um, Yeah. There, there've been some really interesting, I guess, kind of shifts for me and for my guests and for kind of considering that kind of stuff. Um, And I think, um, yeah, I think for me, as the podcast started to get bigger, I really had to like I've, I've constantly had to reflect on what space I occupy with the podcast uh, and what I'm doing with it. Um, and, you know, that was, that was something that I didn't really have to think about when it started because no one was listening. I was just kind of figuring it out as I was going. Um, and now that it's getting bigger outside, well, it has gotten bigger outside of academia. Um, and I have people from, you know, from, from various, um, disciplines coming and and wanting to be on my show and kind of expecting this, this particular experience from it, I do have to be really thoughtful about one, who I'm, who I'm prioritizing, who I'm putting up on the show. Um, And then for guests, I've also um, really tried to be as thoughtful as I can about uh, what I'm asking of them, because I think uh, again, at the beginning, it was my friend. So like, we'd, we'd sit around my kitchen table and we talk and it'd be fine. Um, and now it's these conversations that the people in the public are listening to. So for example, there was like a, um, a conversation that I had with a, a cohort friend of mine, um, back at the beginning of, of the pandemic, um, where her research looks at like, um, ancient DNA and, and disease. And we were talking about like foodborne based diseases and things like that. And so that podcast episode like really took off because it was around the time that we were all looking at zoonotic transmitted diseases and things like that. Um, and so she ended up getting some speaking opportunities from that, which was wonderful. Um, but again, it's like now the public is seeing her in this lens that she might not necessarily have wanted to be, um, So I think for me, I'm always kind of navigating like who does, even if I'm I'm friends with someone or even if I know we've had like really in-depth conversations about a topic just one-on-one, who they want to be on the show and what they want to say on the show is probably going to be different than like what we've had in conversation before. And I think this becomes very, very important, especially when working, like, especially because I work with Indigenous peoples. Um, But I think anyone that's working within like traditional food knowledge or food sovereignty or, or land sovereignty or things like that, 
you know, they have had to work a very, very long time at healing and, and getting this knowledge back that has been taken from them. Um, and so when I ask questions and, and frame things, I want to be very careful about that, that I'm not asking them to share knowledge that like shouldn't be shared with a wider audience um, and kind of making sure that they, they dictate what is and isn't allowed um, and like honoring their time. So I think that's kind of been some of the bigger takeaways. I also find it really weird speaking with like other forms of media about the show because they, they position me as an expert on food and I'm like, "Mm, I just interview people, but okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. But you know, then you have to kind of, I think be humble and be like, Hey, here's my show's premise. And even like when I have, you know, an undergrad on or I talk about, I haven't done too many like solo episodes, but I always at the beginning remind everyone, hey, like I'm at the point where I'm doing like comprehensive research on research that other people have done and writing papers Mm -hmm. on that. And like, yes, I like, I can do presentations in that and I'll have guests on and I'll do that. But we will say in the beginning that this is not original research, you know. I think it's all about just declaring that and then making sure that everyone like understands going in the level that they should expect. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I also, I think there's like a a really interesting element that I've, I've struggled with, not so much in the show, but in sharing the show and in talking about it, um, especially like on, on like live radio and stuff like that, where uh, that imposter syndrome kicks in. And like, I think for, especially for women in, in academia, that's something like I've struggled with that almost my entire career. And I'm at the point where like, I'm almost a doctor, um, but I still don't feel like I am. And so I think that that's kind of been, and I know a lot of people that I've interviewed, like you can kind of feel the hesitations that some people have. And that's always like, it's for me, the goal is like to make sure that their expertise within that subject is maintained um, and really valuing and hyping that up where, where I need to. Um, But yeah, I think that that's kind of an interesting element of it is like, the moment that you become a podcaster and the moment that you release these episodes, you end up becoming, you know, a spokesperson for, for anthropology, for science communication. And then it's like, once you start to build an audience, then you have to like, make sure that you're still valuing the, the seeds of intention that you had planted, like back when it began. I feel like this episode may have been just like advice for Gabby as she grows her <laughs> but um I'm appreciative I'm appreciative of it and I'm appreciative of you coming on and just in general talking to our listeners it was um great to chat with you do you have any questions for me you said you'd have some yeah okay so I'm curious with you because I know you're still in your undergrad and you're starting this like incredible social media or not social media um, like social science podcast. Um, so where do you see the discipline going? Because I think a lot of young people are really starting to bridge these connections. And I'm curious, like, what do you want out of anthropology and where do you mm-hmm. want to bring it? Ooh, I have a good answer for that. Great. I think right now we're far too divided in these subfields. And not that I don't think people having specializations is bad. I think specializations are great. But I think, and the more I interview guests, I think it's also opening my eyes to we, research is so much about collaboration. And I think the best research or projects just in general come from collaboration. 
And so I think anthropology as a discipline needs to become even more collaborative. And rather than being, oh, here, and maybe this is just UCSB, but having our bioanth majors over here and our archaeology majors over here and our cultural anth majors here, and we're all taking pretty different classes. And not that people can't take others, but those it is a bit limited. You're getting quite into bioanth, where and I'm getting quite I'm archaeo based, so I get quite into archaeo, and it's great. But when I want to be a forensic anthropologist. I'm going to need some of that bio. I'm going to need some actual biology. I'm gonna to need to take classes in the biology department. Um, and I think just in general, accepting that in research, sometimes you need to bring in experts from other fields to help complement your existing knowledge, I think uh, is really powerful. And then rather than having it be a cultural anthropology paper, you know, you could still bring in the perspective of say, a psychologist or a biologist depending on that that was just a made-up example but just yeah. depending on what is needed if you have DNA maybe bringing in someone with a gen genetic background because you need that advice if you're looking perhaps at like old remains. Yeah I think it's really important I think uh, the project that I work on I'm really lucky to like it's very interdisciplinary so we have like indigenous scholars uh, me as an anthropologist we have biologists chemical engineers, structural engineers, um, some people that I, I can't even grab, like wrap my mind around what they do. And then we have like um, human rights lawyers and all these people working together. Uh, and it, it's not easy. It's not like oh. a smooth process, but I think it's not a smooth process because of the fact that like we spend so many years niching down what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. And so then we can't play well together. Mm -hmm. We can, we're working on it. Yes. Um, and, but I think that that is like, it shouldn't just be once you get to a higher level that you're collabing, it should be, Absolutely. you know, yeah. having a much more holistic kind of approach to education. Even in the undergrad level, I love it when there's like a biology major or an environmental science mm -hmm. major in one of my ANTH classes, because I truly get a different perspective on it. I had a chemistry major in my osteology class and he would talk, he would have a lot of expert in um, isotope analysis. And it was really great to hear it broken down from someone who had learned about it in a different field, but could apply it to anthropology. Yeah. 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 And like, I, I had a similar, when I taught a food course, I had um, uh, a biology undergrad major um, and then a religious studies undergrad major. Mm -hmm. And like, they would always kind of have these interesting conversations, not headbutts per se, but it was mm -hmm. like very different perspectives yeah. and neither were wrong, but it was like, it just added this extra element to education that I think is so sorely lacking. And it's like, I think those are the conversations that we really have to um, prioritize and add value to because that we all end up leaving learning way more and, and understanding how everything fits together rather than thinking about it in like fractured pieces. Definitely. I think it's so important. I, that's why I think that when colleges have their like prereq, well, I should say, I know American colleges, you would not, you don't just go in and take major classes. You take uh, general studies classes to fill out your general education. Um, and they're very vague. It's like, take a science class, take a mm. arts class. I honestly feel like an anthropology class, an environmental studies class should be required. Mm -hmm. Just because environmental studies, A, you're learning such an applicable and time sensitive issue in our, for our planet currently <laughs> yeah. that 
I think we should be doing environmental studies from grade one up and getting everyone just under, because uh, knowledge is power and understanding what's going on rather than being oblivious. And that's not even necessarily your fault if you just aren't being exposed to education on what is happening to our atmosphere and greenhouse gases and you know what eating meat really does to the water supply and to the environment if you just don't know if you've just been eating meat your entire life or drinking milk and you aren't aware at least you have the information to then make an informed decision um, whether yeah. it is you know whatever that decision may be yeah completely and I think I think as educators like I think a lot about that as I continue in this uh, like nearing the end of my degree is like you know, this is, this is when it's time to like really shift it. And, and it's important that we start to shift it because the structures that we have right now are things that were put in play in like the 1940s, 1950s, and it's not working right now. And we're in a time where like, we really need to figure out how to tackle climate change and how to do these. Um, and like, you know, have people appreciate public health and have all these things interrelated. So I think um yeah there's there needs to be some shifts that happen and hopefully we start to see those because otherwise yeah that can be great <laughs> no it's not <laughs> you could impart that wisdom on your daughter though oh, and yeah, I can impart that wisdom on <laughs> exactly yeah yes the baby steps <laughs> well thank you for chatting with me today mm-hmm.